On today's special pollster edition of the Texas Tribune TripCast, we'll talk with our pollsters about the findings of the latest University of Texas Texas Tribune poll, what it says about the current big issues of the session, like property taxes, school finance and teacher pay raises, about President Trump and John Cornyn and Beto O'Rourke and Julian Castro, about voting rights and immigration, and about issues from vaccinations to college football. But before we do, I'd like to thank today's TribCast sponsors, Texas Southern University. Become the force of change now reshaping our world and profession. We educate all of Texas. Join us at the Barbara Jordan Mickey Leland School of Public Affairs. And Methodist Healthcare Ministries is dedicated to creating access to health care for uninsured and low-income families in South Texas through health care services, advocacy, and strategic grant making. Learn more at mhm.org. Do I have to talk you in there Hello, this is Ross Ramsey here on Thursday, March 7th with the Texas Tribune TribCast, pollster edition. I'm joined by the three pollsters who conduct the University of Texas, Texas Tribune poll. Josh Blank, manager of the Texas Politics Project at the University of Texas at Austin. Jim Henson, co-director of the poll and the chief at the Texas Politics Project. And Darren Shaw, who co-directs the poll and is a professor of government at UT Austin. As always, we'll take your questions in real time on Twitter and Facebook. You can ask those using the hashtag, hashtribcast. Okay, guys, so you got a poll. <laughs> That's right, Ross. That's great. Yeah. <laughs> Let, let's start with Trump. Let's just start at the top with the, with the Trump, Beto, Julian, John Cornyn, and, and politics stuff. Jump in wherever you want on this. Uh, you know, the, the thing we led with was Trump versus somebody else, and he's tied. <laughs> Well, in, in politics and polling in particular, we call this the, the Jesus question, you know, if you where someone else is a stand-in for Jesus. So any opposition to Trump? Uh, no anybody, offense intended. You're on your own here. Go ahead. <laughs> I'm telling you what we call it <laughs> behind closed doors. But the idea is that if you, if you put a flesh-and-blood Democrat uh, up against Trump at this point, or even, you know, plausible independent candidate, right. uh, uh, you're going to get a, a probably an overstated view of Trump's strength because that person is going to be less well known. You're not going to have sort of the force of a campaign and all the fault or all that goes with the campaign kind of alerting voters. And so it's 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 kind of a distorted um, picture as to the relative strengths or weaknesses of the incumbent. Right. Well, the alternative, which is what we do here, is to say, well, you know, are you committed to voting for Trump? Uh, predisposed to vote for Trump, or are you open to voting for somebody else? So someone else stands in for you know kind of all opposition to Trump. Right. So I think people who look at it and say, well, he's you know, less than 50% are, are probably missing a little bit of the point of the question, except it's Texas. Right. Um, and so with the, with the party structure we have in the state, you would expect an incumbent Republican um, to, to be over 50%, even given the level of opposition to, to Trump and the fact that he's never polled particularly well in Texas compared to other red states. Right. Yeah, and then the key there is, is the nuance underneath that top-line number. I think what we've been asking that question, what we're really interested in is sort of amongst Democrats and Republicans, how do they fall, you know, on, on those questions? So what you see is 89% of Democrats, not surprisingly, saying they're definitely going to vote against the president. But then the interesting thing is to say, okay, so 75% of Republicans say they're definitely going to support the president, which means you've got 25% of Texas Republicans at this point in time. Right. And without an, an opposing candidate right. saying, well, Maybe. Right, and that's sort of, I think, what we were most interested yeah. in. And honestly, tracking as we go forward, how does that number move around if we ask this question again, you know, the next time we poll and, you know, seeing the movement there? 
So does this say to you know people that are watching this, if you're like a, a consultant or a candidate or someone who's really you know deeply in the political you know insider ranks, Texas is contestable? Is that kind of the the question Mark this raises, or is this sort of a normal number at this point in the cycle? I think you know I mean is Texas contestable? I mean part of that is that's a decision that needs to be made in the context of what the list of contestable states are, right? I mean, we know that Texas is a very expensive state to contest, right? right? And the question is, you know, if you think, you know, depending on who the Democratic candidate turns out to be, you know, if you think you're starting, you know, let's say like previous elections, if you're starting within, you know, 10 points of Trump, well, it's not, it's not really a place you're going to spend any resources. It's too expensive. If you think you're starting within two or three or four, well, then maybe that becomes one of your, you know, one of your possible states, even if not the main target. So I mean, part of this is just to say, I think, you know, this is not a surprising follow-up to the last election, is, you know, Texas is part of the conversation. Right. Whether it's going to move its way into sort of the, you know, the competitive column or whether it's going to be, a, you know, say the Democrats are going to seriously contest in the presidential election, it's kind of an open question. It's also obviously dependent on a lot of other stuff. I mean, you mentioned John Cornyn, who right. ends up running for Senate, what that looks like. So, you know. A little yeah. early to say. I've never worked on a presidential campaign, and I think somebody at this table has. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, does it tell the Republicans that they have to spend some money defending Texas? You know, I, I, I'm skeptical about this, but maybe not for, for the reasons that we're going to focus on. Right. And that is to say, what, when you talk about the numbers in front of us, the numbers suggest to me this is the president is a weaker Republican candidate in the state than we've seen in a while. Right. Um, and, and so at that level, I, I think you're tempted to say, um, you know, well, uh, you know, as Josh said, I, you know, is, is right now the number of people who say they're definitely going to vote against Trump is 45 percent, right? Well, 45, 55 is a pretty significant loss. Right. Um, and, and so is, is, is all the opposition already kind of gelled in a way that makes you think, you know, there's not much more the Democrats could do here. Right. Um, and I, I tend to kind of lean on that lean towards that perspective. But but my answer would be it, it probably will be on some list of, list of extended battleground states, partly because Trump is seen as weak, which is what the poll numbers say, but partly because, this gets to kind of Jim's point about changing dynamics of presidential campaigns, it's cheaper to contest these states than it used to be. Now, Josh points out money. Well, should the Democrats be advertising, you know, on primetime in Houston or Dallas? Right. Well, no, that'd be, I, I think at this point, that would be a, you know, terrible mistake. But that's not the way presidential campaigns are, you know, it, it's easier for candidates to raise money than ever before. Right. Democrats are probably going to come in with, you know, $200 million at least, even with a contested primary. And with social media and digital and targeted cable and these other forms of, you know, outreach that are now as dominant as presidential advertising. Right. Yeah, I think they're going to be here, um, even if they're not going to be here in a way that, in 1992 or 1996 or 2000, we thought of as being emblematic of real interest in the state. Yeah, and I would go with Josh. I mean, I, I, with both these guys, but to pick up on something Josh was saying, we're in a very kind of contingent moment right now. As we look, the big question is how much of, how much continuity and how much of a break is there with the movement off the line we saw in 2018? Right. Right. Clearly, you know. Something was going on. This is the and question did, of 2018 as a trend you know, line or just as a weird election? Well, yeah. you know, it's going to yeah. be, I, you know, yeah. And, how, you know, how much of a break is it? How much of a reversion to the norm is it? I think we're not going to, you know, the norm was already going down in terms of statewide margins for Republicans right. in the last three. But it's a minimal trend. I mean, it's three and, and 2018 was weird. But, you know, Donald Trump is a turnout machine for both parties. And that makes right. this very contingent. Right. right. And we, we haven't even discussed, you know, 
how much of this is contingent upon who the Democrats nominate. To me, that's a really, you know, I came in here thinking, well, if they put up, you know, if, if, if O'Rourke wins the nomination or if a, a, another young, you know, hot, sexy candidate wins the nomination, that, but, did he just call Beto a hot? No, no, no. No, he's talking, about, he's talking about. He did say another yeah, hot, yeah, sexy. Yeah, candidate. Yeah, I yeah. heard him. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's a boat. <laughs> it's purely in political <laughs> terms, of course. Um, but, but I'm not sure. I, I think that's required now. You know, I, uh-huh. you know, because the op, if someone were to contest that, they say, well, if if Joe Biden comes in and Joe Biden looks like a guy who could really take out Trump, would would young or Bernie Sanders would young people right. in Texas be as fired up? about that would the turnout be as and oh. i'm not so sure you have to have the you know oh. the, the the ex-punk rocker right with the uh you know hispanic name right. to jazz up turnout in texas i'm not sure you you don't need that but i'm not sure you do but i mean you know regardless of whether it's cheaper and you know if it's easier to raise money and it's you know potentially cheaper to reach people that that is all true but the reality is unless you know whoever that democratic candidate is feels like they're shoring up the places where democrats were weak in the last presidential election cycle they're not coming here because that's, a, I mean, that's a, that's a, well, that's that's a role. Can, that's a pretty big role. That's the, dice. the Yeah, I, I, I think that's right. That the television advertising as the, the definitive resource has changed. The candidate's time as right. the definitive right. resource has not. And right. so Josh is probably right. I mean, if if you look at where they're going to map out and where they're going to be, they'll be here to raise some money. Um, but it's it's not likely they'll dump more than a, a visit or two unless they see polling to this effect. Texas is still safe as a source of money for both campaigns. Assuming (laughs) you want to talk about O'Rourke and Castro and and kind of move Yeah, let's pull into those. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I mean, I do think that, you know, Josh is probably going to win because I'm a broken record on this, but I mean, you know, this, there's sort of a chess game that's gone on here that I think some of the pieces have already moved in ways that dictate this being a little, making it a little less likely that Texas is competitive because O'Rourke is not running for Senate. Right. right. Or, the idea here is that the Senate race is, a, is gangbusters, the presidential race, and everything else will be influenced by that. Right. And, you know, I think you need, you know, Bitter works serves more of a purpose in the Senate race than he does cont- off contesting the, the Democratic nomination. But, but so, um, so talk about Beto O'Rourke and Julian Castro and John Cornyn and how these numbers sort out. I mean, we've still got a chance that a Beto O'Rourke decides to get into a presidential race, goes to Iowa, Somebody sticks a corn cob in his ear, he comes home and decides to run <laughs> instead for U.S. Senate against John Cornyn. He's got 10 months to decide that. If somebody sticks a corn cob in his ear, he's not going to be able to run for another race. <laughs> that's going to that's gonna be really Stuff could happen. All right. So <laughs> Bitter O'Rourke's numbers, you know, quickly were virtually unchanged from the last time we were in the field. So from the end of the last campaign. Yeah, I mean, which was right before the election in 2018. And that's understandable. Julian Castro was, and so those numbers were 43 favorable, 45 unfavorable, 12 no opinion. Julian Castro was at 26 favorable, 32 unfavorable, and 42 don't know. And for Julian Castro, that included 43% of Democrats who had no opinion of him. Yeah. yeah. So in terms of... And, and 47% of Hispanics. Right. So so he's, he's Beto O'Rourke before the, before the last Senate campaign in some ways. Roughly. Right. Yeah. With a, yeah Nobody yes. knows who well, you are, right? We'll just I mean, say yes. Yeah, I was going to say, I mean, in some <laughs> ways, that's probably still being generous to Castro. I mean, right? Yeah. Because her work was coming, you know, from far-flung part of the state. We love El Paso, but it's it's very right. far away from the central, you know, sort of media markets right. Right. in Texas. And he was, you know, one of, you know, a small handful of Democratic congressmen, but a lot of congressmen. And the truth is his name idea, right. you know, if you look relative to Castro, if you think of it the other way, which is where was O'Rourke, you know, you know, in the same Castro moment, you'd say... 
he was actually doing really well given that Castro was the mayor of San Antonio. He was in the exec, he's in the administration, right. and people have been talking about him right. for a long time as a statewide candidate. But yet, I mean, Julian Castro has been elbowing his way onto the stage for a long time to have numbers this low in his home state. Let's just say it. So he's going to have to do a lot yeah. of elbowing to win the, you know, what I've been calling yeah. the I ten yeah. primary. He's got to, you know, if you're going to be right. the guy who beats Beto, much less the other three hundred and forty six Democratic candidates. Yeah, I've, I've got a, I have this weird analogy and. and Probably breaks down pretty quickly, but I, I look at Castro and I, I see a little bit of corn and uh, equivalency between Cornyn and Castro, and a little bit of equivalency between O'Rourke and Cruz in the sense that, you know, Cornyn's been around forever. He's gone the traditional route. He right. served in these kind of establishment positions, and yet his recognition numbers aren't that high. Yeah. He has trouble consolidating, you know, the Republican vote or favorability amongst Republicans. Right. Um, in, in much the way Castro does. You know, Castro was in, served in, you know, in these sort of more official type positions. Um, and yet no one really knows who he is. And, and, and Republicans don't like him even though they don't know who he is. <laughs> right. Right. And then on the other hand, you've got, you've got Cruz and O'Rourke who are sort of these meteors uh, who came from, you know, relative anonymity, you know, solicitor general, a congressional rep from way out in West Texas. Um, and, you know, they're at about 95%, I think 90% yeah. uh, name recognition. They're polarizing figures. They have unanimity of support amongst their own right. party. And, and they elicit so, strong feelings. Right, exactly. Well, yeah, know, that's a better way yeah. to put it, Jim. And, yeah. and so I don't want to carry this out too far, but but you look at, if I were advising Cornyn or Castro, I'd, I'd in some sense be tearing my hair out going, you know, are you kidding me? I mean, we've been we've been working <laughs> yeah, this. We've been doing what but everybody both, says. But you, you know, but do. I mean, to take that analogy further, I me, mean, I would say both you know, Cornyn and, and Castro have have been remarkably careful in the way that they approach their jobs and approach sort of you know, I think I don't know. You would just say their I mean, their approach to politics is more careful, right? Yeah. You know, where and not to say that you know yeah. O'Rourke and and Cruz are reckless, but if you look at the current moment right now, especially on the left, where there's sort of this question about you know who can be the most progressive or you know what's your right, position right. on the Green New Deal and universal health care. And all this stuff, there's, you know, you're being advantaged in a way on the left for taking, you know, I would say, more progressive positions in the same way that Cruz was, uh, you know, right. uh, has benefited on the right by being more out there and probably earlier on some of the conservative positions. And frankly, Cornyn probably deserves a little more slack in that analogy, given that, you know, he has been in the U.S. Senate. You know, he has moved up. He has gotten some stuff he's done. He's moved up. He's the number two guy yeah, in the right. in the exactly. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And, and you, you know, 20, and you got twenty nine percent of people who cannot yeah. rate but, but, him. But on he's the also be, but he's also behaving right. like a senator who's only got to run every six years. Right? That's yeah. true. So yeah, just sort of like a and there's an Elvis deficit in a couple of these candidates. Yeah. You know, yeah. a Beyonce <laughs> deficit maybe. We'll, you know, figure out figure out how to talk about that. Get so current, Ross. If, if you threw um, a Castro into a race, and I know Joaquin has talked about it, but you threw a Castro into a race with a Cornyn. Do you start off with, you know, sort of like, is it just a race of two guys trying to define each other or trying to get some attention in a presidential year? I think that's right. Okay. I think that's right. I mean, you'd think, you know, with all of us and, and probably a lot of the listeners who are familiar with politics talk about it, uh, you know, are, are somewhat amazed that their name recognition is so low. And they're not starting from zero, but, right. but yeah, you're talking about a third of, a third of the Texas population that we surveyed can't offer a rating of, of Senator Cornyn's uh, performance in office. And so, you know, these are big names to us. And I, I think they'd be able to get up to speed relatively quickly, right. you know, as opposed to an open seat race between two unknowns. But um, they've got considerable ground to make up in terms of defining themselves and the other one. And they don't, they don't have the party consolidated. They've got sort of all the disadvantages and very few of the advantages. And right. That's why I, I go back to the tearing your hair out or frustration, I think, both of them probably feel. And, and as Josh mentioned, probably Cornyn more than 
and Castro yeah. even. I mean, this is a guy who's been around a long time, and, and I can't figure out exactly what he's done to bother Republicans in the state of Texas, but he... Um, I don't know if he's done anything. I mean, I think the thing that is he's been around long enough that, you know, the Republican Party has moved in a way that he's been a little bit resistant right. to fully embrace, you know. Right. I, I mean, mean Cornyn was elected to that seat in 2002. Yeah. That was a different Texas Republican Party. Yeah. That's true. Well, that's true. That's true. Yeah. Uh, let me let me jump tracks a little bit, talk about the people that are voting in those elections. And we have a significant number of voters in Texas who believe that non-citizens either frequently or sometimes vote in Texas elections. Let's talk about this. I mean, um, is that, you know, I'll say this gently, but is that is that fact-based or is that based on sort of the messaging they're getting from their political leaders? Hmm. I mean, I think it's based on the messaging there. Yeah, we've seen this in, in previous polling with different questions. I mean, going into the 2016 election, we asked people about, you know, the likelihood of, you know, basically not, you know, non-eligible voters voting in that election about the likelihood of, you know, for, you know, the election, you know, the voting machines getting hacked, you know, interference by a foreign power. And, and those numbers were remarkably high, I right. mean, the degree to which, but they're also, you know, unbalanced in the way they are here too, which is, you know, is much, you know, far more Republicans were likely to say that, you know, they thought that the, basically the election system was going to be, you know, hacked or, you know, compromised in some way. And we see the same thing here. I mean, I think it's it's hard because, I mean, right now, this is very much a moment in, in time, right, with, you know, the Secretary of State's election advisory being out there. I mean, this has been sort of something that's been in the news, I think, you know, really around when we did this point. So it's not surprising to see it that high. The question really is, is it that high because of the moment or would it always be that high? And I would kind of lean to say, you know, it's probably going to be pretty high no matter what because elected officials have been talking about, you know, the need for voter ID, right. you know, the fact that, you know, I mean, not, the president has been talking about, you know, non-citizens voting. We had the election advisory. And the truth is, I, you know, I don't know how, you know, if, if that's the only thing I'm hearing, what is the right answer? How right. frequent do I think this is? I would probably think it's pretty frequent. I mean, this is, you know. Well, and it's fair to step back and think about the way we design these questions. I mean, we were interested in capturing yeah, this is half the, of mo a pair, right? the right. moment that jo the moment that Josh was talking about by asking people, you know, how often do you think non-citizens vote in elections? The other version of that, which is kind of the Democratic part partisan version, frankly, that speaks to the, right. the, the trope seems to be the word of the moment, the trope of voter suppression. Right, that's, that's, um, what, it, that's what you've got here. You've got, you a, know, you've got a voter fraud and a voter suppression question of, of right. striper note. And right. they were not fully mirrored because the, you know, so if you look at that when they're we asked about the frequency now. of not, they're yeah. close, but they're not fully, especially if you look at the partisan numbers. You know, overall, when we asked about how often non-citizens vote, uh, people said 18%, 18% said never, and... 22% said rarely. And, and 20, yeah, 18% said say never, and then 28% say frequently, just but to take the outer bands. Right. And then when you look at the, the eligible voters prevented from voting, they're kind of similar, 18 and 17. But Democrat, you know, for Republicans, 47% say that non-citizens frequently vote. And for Democrats... 31% say that eligible voters are frequently prevented from voting. Right. And what that speaks to, I think, honestly, this is what, going back to the question, was this created by the, you know, sort of the news cycle or was this already there? And I think part of what right. happened was the news cycle to some degree and also I think the reaction of a lot of people was predictable because these attitudes existed, yeah. right? Because I think Republican voters, I mean, from the polling here and what we've seen previously, are predisposed to think that, that the voting system is rife with problems. And at the right. same time, you know, what those problems are are, 
you know, basically people voting who shouldn't be. Right. The right? point uh, here, I mean, Josh is yeah. kind of like interested in, I think, you know, just to, not to speak yeah. for, but I mean, no, is that, you know, me. yesterday, I mean, on, on as social media responded, the people in the community responded, the political community, right. air quotes, right. responded to this yesterday. There were some people going, you know, looking at the non-citizen voting thing going, see, this is what happens when the secretary, secretary of state does that. Right. And I would say it missed, it misses how cyclical these things are, as Josh says. There, and, and Darren was saying about the other one, right? right? There are predispositions out there that get activated. Right. And the key right? So that goes there. back to your question, and they're there to be activated by political leaders who are acting as political entrepreneurs. And on both sides. Right. Because both the fact sides. is the right. Democrats are, are ready to see eligible voters being suppressed. Yeah. So, so there's have, an right. example. We have another yeah. sort of example of this in the questions we asked about the wall and, and the way that we asked them, you know, do you... Um, well, just break this down for me. It's the same sort of thing where you've got, um, if you want a wall, you know, sea to shining sea versus no yeah. wall at all, you know, what about a partial wall and how that how Well, this that is another parts? one where, you know, internal process for people that are dorks might be interested into this and, you know, how you can be wrong. I mean, we were going to, you know, we've asked the wall question before. Going into this poll, of course, we're like, you know, we went into, we went to started collecting data the day they cut the deal, Congress and Trump cut the deal on wall spending. Right. So it was very in the air. But we, you know, we and, you know, Josh and I were talking earlier and I was kind of a pain in the ass on the poll team about this because I was wondering, really. Everybody else nods. Does, okay. yes. Does every, you know, do. <laughs> That's right. I go. Do the no people boss. that are adopting these nope. positions, you know, are they really, do the Democrats really all uh, think a wall is immoral and can't take anything? And or and do you know, the Republicans in Congress and Trump, the people that support the, the wall, do right. they think that you have to have a wall from sea to signing, shining seas, you say, or have we just, have we accepted that and people are more reasonable? Well, turns out they're really not that more reasonable. Right. <laughs> right? <laughs> that, you know, within each, so we asked each side, you know, now you say you want a wall, do you mean like the whole thing or an, just some fences? An and unbroken we, wall or, you know, Or, just you know, partials. some sections. And right. then, you know, same thing, the you know, same variances, variations on the other people. And on each side, it was pretty striking, you know, only about, what, a third, less than a third yeah, than said, a third, 30%, no, right. we can just yeah. do it somewhere. You know, had the kind of, quote, unquote, reasonable partial position. And so... Was that a you big know, enough cluster but, but to the, be like a competitive cluster? Pelosi and cluster, Trump like had had a strong base that they yeah. were drawing on the right. on their bargain, their more intractable seeming bargaining position. Yeah, I mean, there might be a competitive cluster in the middle, but nobody in modern yeah. politics is uniting, you know, some subset of Republicans and some subset of Democrats to actually move through some sort of progress here. Right. I mean, the reality is, is that if you're a wall supporter, you're probably a Republican. And you know, seven out of ten of you think it should be the whole thing. And yeah, if you're a you know, and if yeah. you're an opponent, you're a Democrat. And seven out of ten of you think there should be no wall. Yeah, you didn't want any of that money it's to go. It's pretty to intractable. Well, it's it's worth backing backing up a little bit. So, if you just take the basic question, you get fifty two percent who say they support, right, the wall, and you get what forty five percent who say they oppose the wall. Right. And so, you know what what we're all referring to is amongst people who said support. We asked them, you know, well, um, you know, do you want a border uh, wall along the entire border, or you know, just some sections, right? And so, what Jim and Josh are referring to is about two thirds of the of the supporters, so two thirds of that, fifty-two percent said, "You know, we'd like a we'd like a wall along the entire border." Right. I mean, that is a lot. Um, but but what you end up getting then, and, and we'd ask the same of people who opposed it: "Are you opposed to any barriers?" And we get about two thirds who say, "Yeah, I'm opposed to any barriers." But but I would say it is interesting that you look at that. So you got a chunk, roughly about right. a third, who say, "I not only want a 
wall. I want a wall everywhere. And a, about a third, maybe a little less, who say, I don't want any wall. I don't want it anywhere. Right. Um, so there is that, to, to your point, Russ, there is that third in the middle. But as, as Josh points out, I'd, I'd go even further, maybe a little more into the weeds. You're talking about congressmen and congresswomen representing particular districts. And so this is a distribution right. of opinion in Texas. Um, you know, but in particular districts, they're overwhelmed. A lot of them are very strongly Republican or very strongly Democrat. And what the data suggests here is that you got a, a wall district, a district in which people <laughs> right. want a wall. They probably want the entire thing. So even even I think there is a center. The problem is the districts are set up. So there are very few districts where this kind of national aggregate distribution of opinion is going to be manifest in a particular district. So maybe a third of Congress, right. a third of the electorate, yeah. but not a third of Congress. Exactly. Right. So, you know, you and I are probably representing districts that are strong one way or the other. And so, you know, we don't pay any price for taking a strong intransigent position. Right. There's another aspect of this too, which we don't get into because it was kind of after the, the, the budget crisis. And that is, well, would you want to shut down the government in order to achieve your preferred policy aim? And, and that, kind of ameliorates opinion even more. There, I, I did see some national data. Fox had some stuff that suggested that even the most intense on, yeah, I want a border wall, I want the whole thing, they weren't quite sure about shutting down the government. And the Democrats are even more so. If I right. oppose the wall, but I don't really know if I want to shut down the government. So, so there is some subtlety here. But institutionally, I think it's hard for, you know, the true national kind of variance in opinion to be manifest in the public policy process, right? Because that's yeah. not the way Congress is structured. Yeah. Before our next topic, I'd like to thank two more TripCast sponsors, Fast Growth School Coalition. Texas has 70.5 billion reasons to invest in fast-growing school districts. Find out why at fastgrowthtexas.org. And the Texas Association of Counties. Local government is great, not because it's government, because it's local and connected to the people. Learn more at texascountiesdeliver.org. That's not fighting words. Um, okay, so let's go to the next next topic. Uh, speaking of fighting words, public education and property taxes. Um, Thank you for that transition. Yeah, how sponsor. about that? Um, from counties right to the property tax thing. Te Texans love them some property taxes. Yeah, this is this is interesting. Um, you know, um, this, and it's one of those things where you know I always look at the subgroups, and this is one where the fat kids, skinny kids, kids that climb on rocks, all all agree on property taxes. It's, you know, the Oscar Mayer song is is in full bloom here. Um, what did it say? Well, I mean, overall, you know, sort of in the you know, probably most or the least surprising result in the poll, the majority of Texans <laughs> think that people pay too much in property taxes. So you have 58%. And that's really, I mean, that's a table setter. Only 6% think that they pay too little. And, you know, you said that's not super interesting. But part of it is setting the table, you know, for the proposals that we're actually talking about here. Right. And so we asked about, you know, whether people support or oppose uh, requiring voter approval before property tax revenue goes up above a set amount. We didn't say 2.5% because in the end we don't really know what the final percent is going to be. And honestly, if we had said 2.5% or 4% or 8%, I don't think it would have made a difference to these. I don't know if there's a threshold at which people would have said, well, you know, that's too high or that's too low. The main hold, point hold is... Hold on just a second there, Buster. Yeah, I mean, the main, the, main, the main point here is to say... You can take your 6.5% and, yeah. and shove it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> And so, I mean, the main point here was just to say, you know, do voters like the idea of voter approval before, you know, perceived property tax increases? Yeah. Not right. surprisingly. And that's kind right. of, I mean, to some degree, that's why this is the proposal, right? right? Because it's broadly popular. 72% of Texans support it. That included 84% of Republicans and 62% of Democrats. Right. But we wanted to go a little bit deeper. And why don't you, you want to talk about that? Um, yeah. I mean, I think... As everybody at this table knows, we talked about this question a lot because how you ask and how you sort of 
separate out the underlying attitudes that I think we did a good job by saying both, this is about this object and approved by the voters and the specifics as Josh says aren't gonna matter. So then we said, okay, well, what are people's expectations of this? And so we gave people four possible outcomes that have been part of the discussion. Right. You know, to discuss, and none of these are, only one of these really is written in stone for the most part. So we said, do you think it'll reduce property taxes? Current property taxes. Current property taxes that, te- or tax, actually, it's property taxes that Texans currently pay. So we right. really wanted to figure out whether people thought this proposal would lower their property taxes right away, which I think there's a pretty broad consensus that it will not. Do you think it'll slow the growth of property taxes in the future, which is really like what the question says the proposal is designed to do? Will it prevent local government from providing services and will it prevent local governments from responding to population growth? So, you know, these are the kind of expectations that are being called, you know, discussed out there. Right. And I think, you know, the mark, there are two kind of marquee takeaways from here. One, over half of Texans, you know, just, despite their what their social group is across the board, it's a mar- remarkably consistent. 52% say that it will reduce the property taxes that Texans currently pay, which I think is a pretty big yellow flag in the policy discussion and one that was raised to this approach going back. Right. 69% expect it to do what it's designed to do, which is to slow the growth of property taxes going forward. And then as we've heard about the kind of counter and some of the, the objections to this approach, which is that this is going to hamstring local government, Suggest, you know, these results suggest that those are not landing. And I'm not making a policy judgment. I'm just saying that as far as pu- the public's view, right. they're, they're, that not argue, receiving, that not, yeah. they're not receiving that message. Only 22% said that they thought it would prevent local government from providing services. 55% said they right. didn't think that would be it. And similar with, with responding to population growth, 21% said that it would, 54% said it would not get in the way of their ability to do that. So if you're one of those advocates, I mean, that, you're not making that deal so far. It's not, it's not, it's not resonating with the public. Yeah. Right. I, and I would just add, taking a, a step back, property tax, the, the legislature seems to have gotten it right this session with respect to the priorities that, you know, we asked about a series of priorities and property taxes was number one, public school financing was number two, right. very, very close. They're basically stati- statistically indistinguishable. 23% said property taxes, 21% said financing. The, uh, I thought was interesting was that, uh, you know, there's a partisan divide. 30% of Democrats say school financing and uh, is the most important. 36% of Republicans say property taxes. But, right. but there are sizable minorities on both sides picking the other one as the number one right number one issue right. uh and in, I, I was a little surprised independence actually chose property taxes as the number one right issue um again statistically indistinguishable but um you know so there's this is clearly a topic uh, yeah and i do think there as jim suggested there are fairly strong opinions on this and you know so i think not only they got i think in some sense they've sort of they understand the issue over there um, well i mean i you know josh and i were joking i mean you know it's, it's hard not to look at this and see the shadow of perhaps some other polling that was non-public that yeah. has already been well, done. yeah, you're seeing, you know, that these <laughs> yeah. guys have sort of taken the assessment of the public and got to the same conclusion we did, you right. know, and that is in their proposals. Right. Talk a little bit about guns. We, um, I was interested in this is a place where that's not necessarily true, or where the messaging hadn't got through, or something. You know, um, if you ask around the legislature right now about red flag laws, these are laws that would allow judges to take guns from people judged to be 
um, dangers to themselves or to others. Um, the legislative response to that, uh, particularly on the Republican side, has been, you know, no, we don't need to do that. That's a gun law we don't want. And the public view in this poll is, again, across, you know, partisan lines and across demographic lines that voters do support taking those guns away from people that are da deemed dangerous. Right. This is, I mean, this is sort of a, a somewhat consistent feature, I think, of polling around gun control broadly. I mean, when we ask questions about, you know, increasing gun control in a, in a, in a general sense, we see the sort of patterns we expect to see, and we even see those in this poll. Right. Uh, you know, so generally Republicans tend to oppose, you know, increasing gun, you know, restrictions on gun ownership. Democrats tend to be supportive of it. But then, you know, even within the same polling, you can ask about specific proposals and find overwhelming support. I mean, we've done it before, but you can see this nationally, too. There's overwhelming support for universal background checks, usually close to, you know, 90 percent. There's usually some support for, you know, decreasing access to high capacity magazines. When you get into the specifics of these things, people, Republicans, Democrats tend to be, you know, pretty amenable to it. And the red flag law, I think, is is another example of it. I mean, right. you know, to the extent that there's been sort of a discussion around this at all, which there hasn't been much besides this sort of propose it and then pull it back. Right. You know, people are saying, well, this is, you know, this has been, have, you know, arbitrarily take away people's guns. And I think, you know, you look and you say, well, is a judge determining that you're a danger to yourself or others arbitrary? You know, yeah, right. Probably I, not, yeah. you know. Yeah. Uh, there's two quick points on this. The first is this is, you know, to me, this is kind of a, are, are Republicans kind of living up to their own ideologies here? And if their ideology, you, you know, the, the notion that rights are sacrosanct, irrespective of behavior, is not one, is not an opinion that's broadly shared by Republicans, right? That, that right. rights are contingent upon uh, responsible, you know, Use of them. exercising yeah. those rights, right? So, so I think the, the thing about the red flag law is it, it comes in and basically says, okay, what about someone who, you know, according to an objective determiner, we could argue about that, but right. uh, a judge, you know, uh, according to, is, is a danger to themselves or the community. I, I think at that point, what kicks in is this notion of accountability and personal responsibility. So it, it kind of cross cuts Republican attitudes on this issue. And, and in a purely, so that's point one. Point two is from a purely craven political perspective. Right. It's, it's a wedge issue for Democrats. And you don't see too many of those in Texas. Usually it's Republicans put forth a proposal that they think is going to, you know, activate cross-cutting kind of tendencies on the Democratic Split side. Split up the Democrats yeah, somehow, so, and, right. and those are issues like, you know, late-term abortion or right. back in the day before it became very politicized, voter ID, which had support across. Gay marriage. Right, know, right. One, right. One so, so now you, you see what it looks like on the other side, which is, you know, you, yeah. Republicans and Democrats just point out are polarized on gun control, but what, what if you frame gun control as a matter of sort of consequences of personal behavior? And, and I think that's where Republicans fall off, right. but, but could the issue survive a political debate such that that framing, you know, maintains? I'm, I'm, I'm dubious about that, but... Well, and it's also within the context of mental health. I mean, that's, that's the key here. When we've asked about, you know, sort of the causes of mass shootings, both generally and in, you know, and we've asked about school shootings in particular, and we ask about the causes to sort of get a sense of what, you know, where solutions might land with the public. And right. while Democrats overwhelmingly focus on gun control, Republicans have overwhelmingly and consistently focused on basically mental health as the main culprit. And basically you have, you know, sick people who are doing sick things. So when we say, well, should we take away the guns from the sick people? It's not surprising that this is actually kind of probably a sweet spot. Yeah. Okay. So we're almost out of time. So I've got to throw in a lightning round question. Football. <laughs> we're pro. <laughs> are you pro or you don't care? Uh, so we had this question about reviving the A&M-UT annual rivalry, which I guess is legislation from 
Lyle Larson. Um, I love it. Um, I love it. There and <laughs> and the people who um, care about this want the game, and everybody else is like, yeah, whatever. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's great. It's, so, well, I, I thought would, the yeah, whatever was really interesting. I, yeah, Ro yeah, Ross is trying to you know minimize the fact that you know what do we get? Fifty six people say they percent of people say they don't care, or don't have an opinion. I would focus on the forty support for oppose. So yeah. it's a ten to one. You know, yeah. would like to see this game. If you care, it's one sided. Dar Darren yeah. Shaw, football fan. That's exactly well, right. Well, but, but I would also then point out that <laughs> I, take I, this to the president. That I heard on a radio station that I won't name the the complete opposite of that. Kut. Um, they're co they covered this yesterday and they added up the don't care and the opposed. Well, that makes sense. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Which I, th which I thought was good. Cause so, they you know, they don't broadcast football games anyway. Yeah, exactly. You know, I, as, as one of the supporters of this question, I've, you know, I'm actually in the don't care, but I thought it would be interesting. And I thought I was really struck by the governor using it as an issue to give a shout out to Lyle Larson, thought it was an interesting question. As long as we're doing lightning round, the other thing I would say, I would, this fact, I think the vaccine finding was really interesting given that, you know, we're on the edge of a public health crisis in the country and in Texas over, over vaccines and vaccinating right. children. And we found, you know, we were talking about this recently, 78% say that people should have to Vaccine. get their children vaccinated right. right now. When I first saw that and I thought, well, you know, at least there's some it's an overwhelming you know, pres majority, presence right. of mind prevailing, but then thinking about it from my, and I'm not this kind of a person, but when we, the, some of us were a subset of us were talking yesterday, you know, one could look at that and go, wow, that 14 is kind of a big number, maybe from an epidemiological perspective. And I'm not a right one in six or one in seven voters is saying, and I don't think it ought to be required. And that, and that's true. It's whether, probably not enough. And that's true <laughs> whether you have kids or not. And that's the thing. Yeah, right? there was no split, right? There was so no split between the school right now or no. Exactly. Right? And that's the thing, though. I mean, the fact is, is, this isn't, you know, a bunch of, let's just say, you know, older people whose kids have, you know, gone on and they're just, you know, more focused on other issues. I mean, these are people with kids in the public schools and they're still one in six who say, no. Yeah, we're, take, we're taking the lightning out of lightning round. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So I'll, I'll, I'll go just to draw to your attention, Ross. Hey, Sparky, and, and, let's hear it. Yeah, and the, <laughs> and the listeners, we had a question in there about uh, the, whether people would support increasing taxes at various levels of income. Right. Um, you know, everybody versus 250 a year, 1 million, 10 million. And I, I thought the variance in that question was really interesting. It again points to something that Josh and Jim and I have said throughout, which is if you give people, when you tease out opinion across these things, when you, know, right. you, you make it a little more subtle, you, you tend to find that people's opinion is a little more nuanced than maybe is sometimes portrayed. Right. Okay. That's all the time we've got this week. Thanks to Texas Southern University, Methodist Healthcare Ministries of South Texas, the Fast Growth School Coalition, and the Texas Coalition of Counties, our sponsors for this TribCast. Special extra thanks to Spoon for our theme music. Oh, yeah. On behalf of Josh, Jim, Darren, and our producers, Michael, Ray, and Bobby, this is Ross. Thanks for listening.